Hello, my name's Phil King. And I'm Cass Ricks. And thanks for joining us in our search for the soulful leader. Now, none of us want to work in a soulless organisation. So how do we go about building the opposite? Organisations that can change our daily experience at work and provide us with a true sense of purpose. We want to be part of a world where organisations exist beyond merely chasing the numbers, but where their leaders are consciously aware of the positive impact they can have on themselves, their people and wider society. So we've created this podcast to learn from those leading the way with practical insight and inspiration for anyone looking to elevate the impact of their business right now. So this week we are blessed to be joined by Agnette Van Linga, who is, and how's this for an intro, a leadership advisor, artist and farmer. She's an organisational development consultant with some 30 years experience working within the world's largest organisations and partnering with some of the most highly regarded consultants in the field of leadership coaching. Based in a remote area in the north of the Netherlands and yet hosts silent retreats and uses her art specifically as a sculptor to create space for people to unravel and explore existing patterns and themes in their leadership. And yet was one of our very first guest recommendations from Deborah Rowland way back in episode one. Yeah, I'd like to mention Anjette Van Linger. I go on her silent retreat once a year and I have just learned so much about the soul through being blessed with my colleague and, and now close friendship with Anjette. She's always has these wise, soulful things to say. She's a, a special lady who you might want to interview. We think you'll agree too. Agnette is a wonderfully calm and peaceful presence with a unique perspective and skill set. This discussion really gave us a totally fresh perspective and will leave you with some really practical tips for developing your leadership. So welcome Agnette. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Really, really lovely to have you here. Thank you. I've been doing a little bit of reading some of the articles that you've written and I suspect that noticing Mm. is going to be a topic a bit of a theme through this conversation so it seems appropriate perhaps to start with a question what you're noticing in the world of late that's been kind of capturing your interest or imagination what have I been noticing in a world I'm noticing this real dichotomy between on the one hand all of us wanting to go back to the way things were before And at the same time, somehow realizing very vaguely in the back of our minds, at least some of us, that maybe that isn't the way. So so let me give you an example. So we we live here in the north of the Netherlands in a village of about 300 people on what used to be a small farm. And we're now starting to turn it back into a vegetable farm. We have our own sheep. We're both also artists and I do some leadership development work. I'm slowly, you know, actually decreasing my world in a way to what is here right now, which is a very, very, very unusually cold spring with a very dry spell. And now it's suddenly excessively wet. All these things are things that I am starting to really notice. And yesterday I was in town installing a sculpture in a big museum and I did what I used to do when I lived in town which is to go to a place to have coffee and uh, a sandwich and I was just watching the people around me who like I used to do have probably no idea that it's an unseasonally cold spring that it's been very dry and then very wet 
that all these things impact the way that we can produce our food, that all these things are to do with the seasons and that the seasons are part of the way that we live our life on this planet. And I was just becoming so very aware of, of this increasing distancing between my old self and where I am right now. Without any judgment about it, I, I hasten to add, but just the way I used to live and work and operate and the way I live and work and operate now, I'm sort of noticing this shift between let's get back to normal. Well, maybe normal wasn't normal. And also, you know, in the people I, I talk with as a consultant, I'm starting to find that they're questioning themselves in a similar way. Are we going back to the way things were? but actually the way that's perhaps not necessary. A dichotomy that, that I think can actually be incredibly creative if we use it wisely. Let me stop there before I start rambling, really. <laughs> it's good. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating time, isn't it, certainly? And it's mm. going to be so interesting to observe how things um, unfold. Mm. You referred there to your house and your, your home in the, the north of the Netherlands, and I know that that often plays a part in the work that you do. Mm. I just wonder if you could paint a bit of a picture for us there, you know, give us a bit of an insight into your surrounds. This part of the Netherlands is relatively young land. Five kilometers north from here is the Waddenzee, the sea. And it's, it's new land that has been, in many ways, made in collaboration between the people and the sea. So the sea deposits a lot of the mud, you know, on the shore. And then when the mud was getting solid enough, people would build a dike on the water side of the mud and then would let the soil settle and dry out and then it would have new land and the sea would then deposit new mud and so the same process would repeat over and over again and in that way part of this land has been built and I say that because it is very specific to this particular part of this country and a little bit on the German water coast as well. But it's also quite specific of the way people live here. So people live in sort of a collaboration with nature. You know, you try and keep it out in part, but you also let it work for you. And this area produces planting potatoes. So this area grows those, those seed potatoes. And they grow them particularly well, they always say, because of the fickle climate, because of the way that the sea and nature and humans and nature collaborate, but also because of the stubborn nature of the people here. That's why these potatoes are so good. So we moved here four years ago. It's a small village. And then beyond that is the great nothingness of lots of acres of potatoes or grains or onions. This has been a farm since 1830 and then turned into a flower farm around the 1960s. And that was empty for years. So ultimately, we were able to buy it for not very much. We have 20,000 square meters of land. A big barn that is used for storage of our hay, also where the sheep lamb in spring. And that's my studio, as well as Mark's workshop. And this year, we're starting a market garden to feed about 30 to 40 people. We're hoping to grow to be able to feed about 100, 150. Exciting. And our life is really this mix of living with the rhythm of nature, living, really caring about, is it cold or warm? Is it dry or wet? And these things matter so much more here than they used to matter in my previous life. And in my previous life, I could do you know, a good job about talking about the importance of seasons metaphorically in leadership and in organizational life and in 
you know, pretty much everything we do. And here the seasons are just like a daily presence all the time. Yeah. Yeah, really living it now. Yes, yes, definitely. That is something that really influences the way I work. It's taught me something about the relativity of deadlines. So whenever I work with clients, you know, we'll look at what really matters here. And is that deadline something that if you don't do this, will something crash, will something collapse, or is it a self-imposed moment that we've chosen in order to create something or to alleviate our own anxiety about something? So it's really made me um, sharp, but very compassionately so with people when they're getting all worked up about things that are not important. Wow. (laughs) Fascinating pictures. This is the first time I've met you, Anya. So it's a delight to have you on our podcast. Thank you for guesting for us, for (laughs) being here to tell your story. We're here to explore the notion of soulful leadership and to hear the voice of everybody who might have a view or a perspective on it. So my question to you is, when you hear the word soulful leadership, what does that mean for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I gave that a little bit of thought, actually, in the past few days after speaking to Phil. And the risk of talking about it is always to use words that are way too big. You know, you can talk about authenticity and servant leadership and people bringing their whole self to work, a mindful way of approaching leadership. All these things are true and important. Bill Plotkin, in his book Nature and the Human Soul, if you haven't read that, I do thoroughly recommend it. He talks about the soul being a place. So the soul not being something that's inside of you, but the soul being being a place. And when I read that, that it shifted something in me about how I thought about soul. Because suddenly it was a place that I could go to, or a place that I could find myself in, or a place that that I could find shelter in. And then I ended up actually as a consequence of reading his book to make a series of three sculptures that are just ever so slightly curved stones that provide just about enough shelter for you to hide behind. And they're called My Soul is a Place. Last December, I hosted a series of silent hours all the way through the Advent period. Every morning between eight and nine Dutch time, I would host an hour of silence on Instagram with some poetry. And one day I read a poem by the American author Wendell Berry, who is a farmer, a poet, a writer, an activist, a very wise man. And in that poem, he talks about how he serves the soil and how he serves the world and how the farmer serves the soil. And so I did that day, as I did every day, ask my participants, who or what do you serve? Do you know? And whenever I ask my participants a journaling question, I have to also ask it of myself. So I instantly asked it of myself. And the answer came absolutely instantly. I was surprised by that. It was, you serve this land. You serve this place, this particular piece of land to serve whatever lives here and enable whatever lives here to live. And you serve the silence that this land holds. And you serve the people who come and seek that silence. I hadn't actually thought about my work like that. But the answer was so instant when I 
think about soulful leadership and you know being in the right place and also serving that place this for me really feels like an example so for me to take up my leadership in a soulful way is about serving this particular place when you're gardening, you feed the soil and the soil feeds the plants. So when you're trying to grow your organization, what you need to do is to work on the conditions in which your people work. And so it might be organizational structure, but, it, but it's also what culture are we creating here? How as a leader can I ensure people feel a sufficient sense of belonging to be able to do their work? So when, when we come to talk about soulful leadership, how as a leader... Can I ensure that not just I am in my right place, but other people are in their right place, that they have a place that's not too big or not too small for them, that they can operate well? That's a beautiful description, and yet I'm sure everybody who hears that will feel like they were in that place with you. Hmm. The description of being somewhere that you find shelter and perhaps you can be of better service as a result because hmm. you're, you're where you are meant to, supposed to be, whatever the phrase might be as hmm. you described. Hmm. Which is not always a comfortable place, right? It's not necessarily the place that you're meant to be, the place that calls you. For me to be hearing in that field, like you serve this soil, I'm like, well, hang on, but I was an artist and a consultant and how do I do that? And so it's not necessarily always, always comfortable. Mm. And I bet you there'll be many leaders showing up in your podcast telling you how uncomfortable it is, the place that they're in, but knowing still that it is the right place. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps not just the guests either. I can certainly reflect on some moments in my life and my leadership life where I know I have to be here, but perhaps it wouldn't be what I would choose, mm. what I would consciously with my mind choose, even though perhaps my soul requires it of me. It, it, it's like a two-stage process. So first, Cass, as you say, it is about noticing what the right place is mm. for you and figuring out, you know, how big or how small that place is. So sometimes leaders take up a place that is too big. And as a consequence, they can't lead soulfully because there are too many things that they're trying to be at the same time. So I think first it is about figuring out what is the right place and, and letting the place, often letting the place find you. And then it is about serving it and noticing how it needs to be served, which is not necessarily always how you would like to do it. Mm. It sounds rather to me that perhaps there's more than one of those in a lifetime then. Mm. I would say Intrigued by the idea that soulful leadership evolves over time and shifts significantly over the course of one person's career, I felt the need to dig deeper into Aniette's personal journey. Her first leadership experience came to her not dissimilarly to Aletha, one of our previous guests, in the distinctly commercial oil business with Shell. Aniette's journey has taken many twists and turns towards the place she now finds herself as a sculptor and artist taking a reflective and almost solitary approach to leadership development and encouraging a deep connection with nature and silence on her farm. This may seem a great distance from the commercial leadership environment that you're experiencing, but as she goes on to share, the principles of noticing, paying attention and being deeply curious are relevant to all of us as people leaders in any situation. When I first started off in the world of work, I joined Shell in 1992. 
as what was then called a junior OD consultant. And I, I knew zero of anything. I just had graduated. And as big organizations do, they hire graduates on a bunch of criteria that have nothing to do with the job today they need to execute. So you learn on the job. And I loved it. I absolutely loved the work I did at the time. You know, so my one of my first jobs was really working with shift supervisors who often had been in the company for longer than I was actually old in a refinery at that. So it was very much a no bullshit environment where the only way I could lead maybe too big a word, but the only way I could serve was to really tune in to what was present for them and seeing if there was even ever vaguely something I could actually add to their experience and wisdom because of not having their experience and wisdom. And, 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 and of course I could. So at the time, that was definitely, I think, my place. And I grew through my years in Shell, worked there for 12 and a half years, both into roles that were absolutely fitting and also, as everybody does, in roles where you think, gee, man, this looked good on my CV, but hell, you know, I'm bored beyond my mind and I really don't actually feel I'm contributing anything or making anybody's lives better, let alone putting any money on the bottom line, which has never been my main concern, really. So when I resigned in 2004, when I was actually in a happy job, but I felt I was becoming very collared by just that one organization. And I wanted to discover how else I could serve and also what I believed about leadership and leadership development and organizational development if I wasn't you know, seeing the world through red and yellow glasses, which, you know, inevitably you do when you work mm-hmm. in a large corporation, it colors the way that you look. And so I've, I've been an independent consultant ever since and had... No various moments of, of, you know, doing large corporate consulting work. In 2010, I was on my way to a particular client. And somehow in the car, I've been pondering with the idea of maybe taking a sabbatical year, but somehow in the car, it became utterly clear that I needed to stop. Um, and so the first thing I did when I arrived at the client, first thing I said to them was, right, you know, I'm going to still work with you for three months and then I'm going to stop for a year. And they were like, what? And so, well, and, you know, I think, I think I need a year of silence. I need a year of silence space where I somehow let silence teach me. And so, you know, we continued preparing whatever it was we were preparing. And I drove back home and I was like, oh, my God, what have I just done? I was just, you know, literally given notice on my most profitable clients, my most longstanding relationship. Um, and I can't go back. And I felt everything in me felt I can't go back on it. But it wasn't the decision I took. It was like the decision took me. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence, I then obviously gave notice to all other clients. And then I spent a year predominantly in silence and in the studio you know, with some time in the monastery and some time just all by myself in a small French house for a few weeks with nobody, nothing And that, I think, was probably one of the most transformative periods in my life because it it taught me that when you choose to let everything fall away that that you think determines you, you know, like big clients and good income and, you know, colleagues who have status and da-da-da-da-da, PowerPoints to make, spreadsheets to work out, you know, workshops to prepare, open spaces to facilitate, God knows what. And all of that falls away, you're still there. But you you get to meet a very humble, 
vulnerable part of yourself. And that was incredibly rich and difficult and awful and beautiful and wonderful and everything at the same time. And, and that, I think, subsequently influenced everything I've done since in terms of allowing space in the work I do, allowing space in how I facilitate, in how I work with leaders, in how I coach. Can I just ask you to expand a little bit on that? If, if, if you would perhaps pinpoint one or two biggest, most impactful ways in which that experience has shaped now the work that you do, what would they be? So we were working with a large energy organisation and both clean energy, so wind energy and solar and all kinds of sustainable sources of energy, but they also still have lignite mines. And lignite is not necessarily particularly environmentally friendly um, source of energy or electricity. And in order to, to mine the lignite, the organization's actually, well, basically destroying villages and destroying soil, which they then, when they're done mining, turn back into beautiful nature reserves. But it's like, you know, you first you rape the earth and then you, you turn it into something glorious. And we were working with about 30 or 40 leaders in, that, in, in, a, in a large room. And the sentiment in that room was, well, you know, lignite is lignite and us is us. You know, we do the clean stuff or we do the innovative stuff and they do the dirty stuff and it's the stuff that used to be. And, and somehow it became clear as we worked with them in, in a constellation setting. So somehow it became clear that anybody who wanted to do anything innovative it was like they were trying to run whilst being pulled back by a rubber band or an elastic band. They couldn't progress until such point as the, the people responsible for lignite made it clear that they were incredibly sad. They were incredibly sad. They were sad because they knew their time was coming to an end, even though it was still 30 years away, but still the end was in sight. They were sad because everybody thought they were dirty and unimportant. They were sad because they were the people who had funded the entire growth of this organization and were now being nearly kind of dismissed as trash or or not acknowledged as even, even part of the future. And so they were sad, they felt unseen. And it wasn't until they made that point very clear, literally by sitting down, this really tall bloke sitting down on the floor saying, I am so sad. And other people acknowledging that sadness and acknowledging that that they had a debt a debt of gratitude to pay to these you know, this part of the organization that had always enabled all the other innovations to be funded. And that maybe now it needed to close down and maybe yes it was no longer environmentally sustainable, but you know, they wouldn't the whole organization wouldn't have been where it, where it was if it wasn't for this lignite section. The sadness being voiced and then the other people acknowledging that really, you know, made the organization uh, turn a corner. And for me, it's a, it's a beautiful example of how easy it is to differentiate, you know, in, a, in an us and them or in a somehow not acknowledging that you're part of the same field. And maybe the place, you know, talking about the size of place, the place of lignite is becoming smaller and, and less important. But if you don't, collectively acknowledge that then even while it decreases it's it it can still be a break on anything else you want to do Mm. 
So that for me is, is always a very beautiful example of how these things are all, they're so interrelated. I think that's a really insightful example. We hadn't heard that before. Whilst you described at the very beginning, you, you could think that some of the words associated with soulfulness are too big, too, too vast. Hmm. To me, what that brings to light is, first of all, the shadow side of everything. Hmm. And then within that, the authenticity that exists when you accept that it's not, hmm. well, first of all, perhaps good and bad are not the best words to be using anyway. Hmm. But if you were choosing to use good and bad, then there is always a darker side. There is always something else. And the practicality of needing to acknowledge that really speaks to me. It feels like you've taken hmm. a, something that's quite a, a conceptual thing of accepting that you're all part of the same field, hmm. connection, whatever, energy universe, and then saying what we need to do is acknowledge that. And that might be verbally, that might be mm -hmm. some way we write it, but to say I, I see and I hear and I feel this other element of something I'm part of and I'm not separate from, and that heals something. It, it's, it's absolutely, it's exactly that. And it, it is, I think, Phil, when we started, you asked me about, about what I was noticing in the world and, and saying noticing is you know, features big in, in how I practice soulful leadership or how I invite people to practice it. And it's, it is, I think, what you were saying, Cass, re reminds me of, of, of noticing and of, of what I often call the cycle of noticing. So in that that, that example that I just gave, anybody you know could have seen perhaps that the people who were representing Lignite, who were working in the Lignite division, were sad. Anybody could have seen that. But the only people who could give voice to that were they themselves, because they were the only people who felt it. Mm -hmm. And so when you're thinking of an organization or a working community or even society as a field, anybody can really only notice what it what is his or theirs to notice. This is again all related to place. So the lignite people were the only people who could notice sadness and give voice to sadness. And if they don't voice the sadness, it is present in the system, but it doesn't get spoken to. And as a consequence, it, it festers, it goes underground, etc. Whereas other people might be able to notice other things. And, and so, so you can only notice what, what you can feel from your particular place in the field, and only you can then name it to make it available to be worked by everybody. And only once you start to do that, can you then invite a new cycle of noticing you know, to see whether perhaps there are other things that need attending to. Mm, thank you. So I want to I dive into this topic of noticing a little bit more. Mm. It feels like it has quite a practical feel to it as well, in a way. You know, whether it's a skill, whether it's a, a practice, whether it's a, a sort of developed trait, if you like. Mm, mm. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just unpicking the, the the topic a little bit and help us understand how kind of fine tuning this skill can be of real benefit to leadership. You know, we live our lives also through a filter. We can't notice everything because it would drive us bonkers. But it matters to be aware of what is it that I can notice from my place that somebody else can't see because they're not in this place. And so I think it's a real, a real practical skill that I think is particularly important in, in, in group work or in leadership teams or when you're working with a larger community is to see if you can help everybody develop the skill of noticing what is true for them so that it can be shared so that collectively you can progress. 
And I always think of it as, as a cycle in four steps. So first there is the noticing starts with me. What is it, you know, in this conversation, what is it that I am noticing about myself? And what is it that each of you is noticing about yourself? You know, how are you feeling? How is your physical presence? Are you noticing any twitches in your body? Are there things in inside, you know, on the screen around you that catch your attention? And then when you're working with a group as a leader or as a, as a consultant or as a facilitator, the invitation then is to name what you notice, because unless you give it a name, you, know, you can't work with it. So the lignite guy needs to start to name the sadness. And then in a larger group, once you've noticed and named something, you can work it. And the name is not like this is how it is. The name is we give it a a label so we can talk about it so the lignite guy tunes in notices sits down notices the turmoil in his body the the dropping of his face and he names it as i'm feeling so sad then the sadness becomes available for work and the sadness becomes available for work in the whole community in that whole group all the people who were present in that room and once they've started to work it they can then invite inside themselves or in the community is there something else that we're noticing like the people who are working in innovation or wind energy feeling like you know well i feel like i've got a handbrake on i feel held back i feel like like there's ties in my back that are somehow pulling me and so it becomes a cycle of noticing naming working and inviting that 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 that's never ending really and of course you know at some point you've got to know where noticing is helpful and where it becomes annoying navel gazing that's a wise marker yeah. as well so let's take a moment to reflect on the cycle that Agnette describes firstly what are you noticing in this situation conversation this meeting what are you noticing about yourself how does your body feel? Are you fidgeting? Are you excited? Are you uncomfortable? Secondly, can you name what it is that's being felt or experienced in the room? And by doing so, putting those emotions out into the open so that you can, in Agnette's words, work with it externally. Thirdly, you start to work it as a group, both to feel what others are feeling and to really understand it. And then finally, to invite others into that feeling the experience and the discomfort and to see what's possible to shift, to recognise that perhaps there's another way through. As Agnette says, noticing, naming, working and inviting, and then noticing again. This is what we can offer as leaders to serve the place and the people we find ourselves with. It reminds me of the idea that if you name and share these things, we can work on them. The unspoken things that we don't want to share so easily as they might be labelled as negative or difficult. But there's a greater truth here, that in order to allow things to move through or heal, you need to feel them, own them, and then you can move forward. There was another quote that you, you mentioned in the article that I read, which I really loved, which is the, the elephants in the room need naming, but not all the ants do. <laughs> Ah, yes, and, and that was the, that really struck me is, is how do we distinguish between those things that, that do need to be surfaced and will offer value to the system and those things that actually mm. don't mm. 
And I often find that in my work, I work a lot with training or skilling up rather. It's not, not even training per se, but it's more helping HR people grow their skill as a facilitator and as an OD, OD professional. And they often ask me, so how do you know when to say something and when not to say something? And it, it is, this is, this is all about inner noticing. I mean, you can, those of you who can see, you can see I start to close my eyes and I point my fingers to my stomach. So that's where I know. If I'm facilitating a large group and, and whatever it is I'm noticing is starting to stir my stomach, then, then it is certainly, then it is something that's worth paying attention to. And then I need to discern, is it stirring my stomach because it's something about me, you know, my ego being ruffled or something that I find particularly disturbing, but for this group, it seems to be okay. And if that's not the case, then then clearly it is something about the system. And then no matter how hard it is to say it, it needs speaking and serving the system. And as you said, you talked earlier about, you know, sometimes it's not comfortable. So serving the system and serving the soul of a system or a community is then, that means you've got to speak to it. At least, you know, that's, how, that's, that's what it means for me. And is there something as well just about, even if it's not spoken necessarily, but sometimes just noticing can offer a release, you know, within the system in itself. Yeah. I think that's that's something I've learned over the years, that that, that there are moments where but then it starts it starts to border on the freak on the freakiness. We're all in for that, don't worry. No, well, let, me, well, let, me, <laughs> let me give you two examples. So I was working with a, a leadership gathering of a very large a UK-based corporation, international manufacturing, all of that. So international manufacturing technology means a more male-dominated organization. But they were really working hard on their diversity. And I've been helping their facilitator team be doing the work. So my role that day wasn't to actually speak. My role was to be their, like their backup, their backstop. And they could come and have chats, you know, what you're noticing, all these things. And at some point, at now like nearly the end of the first day in plenary conversation, it was one of these designs, you know, lots of plenary, lots of small groups. In the final plenary conversation, I couldn't help myself because I, I suddenly noticed that during the entire day, I had not heard one single female voice in plenary, not one. And clearly none of the women who were there felt capable of speaking. And then I somehow I felt like my, my role is not to be popular, but is to say what needs saying. So I asked whether I could say something, and I could, and said, well, actually, now this is the first female voice in plenary. And I was curled up inside because, you know, my role isn't to speak in public, and I'm supposed to be supporting all these people, and I can actually speak to all of them about it, but then we've missed a point, and then we're going to talk about it tomorrow morning, and we can say, well, yesterday nobody, but the moment is now and so you know I stood up and I spoke about it which caused ripples and did whatever it needed to do so that that was a moment where noticing and naming became important for the rest of the community to, to be able to do the work overnight and all the women to kind of go well, mm. at stake you know we need to shape up because it's not just because they're speaking it's also because we're not and yet another moment I was with, it's a bit longer ago, and just as I came out of my sabbatical year, I was facilitating a bunch of people from a, it was a Dutch electricity company. 
And somehow in a workshop, we had asked all of them to come up with some, I can't even remember exactly what it was like, some artifact or something that for them absolutely demonstrated what the the essence of this organization was about, why they were there, what they were doing, and what this person's role was in that organization. And each of them was invited to come to the middle of the room and speak to that briefly. And the fear in the room was absolutely through the roof. And I had just started this whole process of do I always need to say it? So I thought I can do two things. I can name the fear and then we'll have an hour's conversation about the fear and probably won't go away. Or I can try something else, which is to really feel all their fear to with every breath, I, in every intake of breath, breathe in all their fear and then breathe out a sense of relief. Really breathe in all their fear and breathe out a sense of relief, which is, and the Buddhist will scold me for it but it's like a very short crunched version of a buddhist practice called tunglen where you where you breathe in what's difficult and breathe out the relief for yourself or for others and so i started doing that and it shifted the sense the atmosphere in the room shifted and i maybe it would have shifted anyway i don't know that you know, you can never go back on these moments. But it was for me very much a, a teaching of, well, okay, so I need to notice it and I need to be able to work it, but maybe I don't need to speak it out loud. Maybe if me breathing it in, somehow energetically something shifts in the room, which enable, enables other people to, you know, swallow their fear and then go. So, yeah, I think, and and, and to discern when you do one and when you do the other and how you, avoid getting in an ego trap about mm. the choice is really important mm. and difficult and all of us get that wrong you know at times doesn't that somewhat go back to the point you made about recognizing where you are and then choosing to serve the place that you are yes so you would come back to the intention of service if and, yeah. and as you said earlier on when you ask yourself that question maybe in your soul or your heart the answer comes yeah so if you know that that's, you trust your gut, that's where the feeling comes from. What am I serving here? Yeah. Why am I talking? Yeah. Or, or do I not need to speak at all? That's a, it's a really beautiful, it feels very practical, actually. And you said it kind of gets a bit freaky, but I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in using breathing to feel what others are feeling. Mm. And whether you choose that or you choose to speak or not, perhaps you just being prepared to notice and work with it is enough. Absolutely. And, and also, I think what you're, what you're saying is really important. And at the time, with that particular client, the digital electricity client, I had a, a CEO I worked with who very much did not pay me for the number of words I would say in a day. So he paid me. It was beautiful. He paid me for my containing presence, for being able to breathe in the fear and not speak, for knowing that my Quality as a, a consultant with that group wasn't dependent on man, how many interventions I did throughout the day. And, that, you know, it's so easy to fall into that space mm. for us as facilitators and supporters. And I bet you for leaders, it's the same. You know, it's, it's your quality as a leader is not dependent on how often you say something, but it is very much determined by how you serve the system mm -hmm. and how you serve the soul of the system. Mm. 
So you mentioned you had a couple of practical exercises that you do often with organisations to help them better notice what's happening in the system. And maybe as well, I wonder whether you could just perhaps share a couple of those examples. There's a few things that come to mind, actually. One really, I often do this when I'm helping, for example, HR folk or others to try and deepen their capacity to notice is to get people to really stand in front of each other or sit in front of each other. At, I mean, like, so in COVID times, that would have to be at an appropriate distance. But usually I ask people to choose a distance that is just a little bit too close for comfort, which nowadays would be difficult. And it's a practice of kind of noticing backwards and forwards. So I would be looking at you, Phil, and I would say, so what I'm noticing about you is that you're really focusing your eyes on the screen at the moment and there's a slight smile on your face. And you would say, thank you. And then you would offer me a noticing back. And then I would say, thank you. And I would offer you another noticing back. And you do that not for like a minute because that's easy. And after a minute, you know, you've had the hair and the color of the clothes and, you know, trousers shorter, longer, whatever. And then you start to, people start to really notice like muscles in each other's face or little twists. You know, people who really don't want to engage in it will laugh it off, which is fine. And the people who do really want to engage in it will actually engage in it for, you know, say three minutes. So if you want to practice your noticing, you can do this like with a colleague. You can even do it on Zoom. You set yourself a timer so you know you're going to go for at least five minutes or four or whatever, three, and go backwards and forwards. Here is what I notice about you. Thank you. Here is what I notice about you. And it's teaching you to really look, look very closely. I can imagine that being quite a good exercise to do uh, for self-noticing as well actually so capturing as you go through that experience what's going on for you absolutely which is why the thank you is in between because it's inviting you to pause for long enough that you can then offer another noticing and that the other noticing is really about the other person it's not about your own inner process mm. And in an organizational setting, I sometimes work with a leadership team and have actually just sent them away to go and walk the floors of somebody else's department just with a really open mind and then notice, just, just notice the things that catch your attention or ask people to really focus on people's facial expressions. As you just go and walk a floor and notice people's facial expressions and come back and tell us what you saw and what that did to you. So it's, 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 as you say, it's always about what are you seeing and, and what's the impact on yourself. As a consultant, when you're entering a new client system for the first time, what you're noticing at, about that entry process, even just the way you make appointments, but also the first time you physically enter that building, has huge amounts of noticing about it. Once I walked, it was a publishing house, and I walked into their main hall, and three things struck me. One was that their share price number was like one of those lights, you know, light bubbly things in the hallway and, and their share price was kept on being shown and share price of one or two other stocks. The other thing was that somewhere in that same huge empty hallway, there was like a tiny, 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 you know, glass case where one of the absolute oldest pieces of typeset printed books was being showcased, which was what their history was from. So their history mattered. And their stock price matters. And then on the table were some company magazines that were at least five years old. 
and there was one poster in the corner with a set of values that if I took away, blocked out the name of the organization, it could have been a bank, it could have been a transport organization, it could have been a publishing house, it could have been a swimming pool, it could have been anybody. You know, and all of that, it just in five minutes. And you learn so much about an organization. So that's noticing as well, I think. It's just taking all of that as data. And then, of course, yeah, well, you know, we never bothered to replace those magazines. No, I know. I know. But what's that telling you? Mm. Yeah. I feel that I want to... I want... Oh, hang on. I just need to put the plug in because the battery is running out. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was well noticed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of noticing and I've spent a long time sitting. In fact, I think it was a total of 30 minutes once standing in somebody else's space, noticing in silence, which was mm, really wow. quite powerful. Yeah. Um, I recommend it, but I also understand that in some environments, it's not something everybody would even stay in the room for, let alone participate in, but for another mm. day. The question I have to ask you, the question I must ask you, Anya, is <laughs> if there were one piece of advice that you would want to give your 20-year-old self that you would listen to, what would it be? 20, huh? Mm. 1987. I think I would advise my 20-year-old self to spend enough time to figure out what it is that matters to you and see if you can, at that age, discern what matters to you from what matters to other people and therefore you think it matters to you as well. Mm. And then at the same time, I would say that even if you don't get it right, you can still have a pretty good life. <laughs> so try and discern it, but if it doesn't work out, don't worry because you'll, you'll discover it as you go along. I mean, my 20-year-old self was studying Chinese and was still thinking she's going to go and study in China for a year when Tiananmen Square happened and she didn't. And people who I know currently, when I talk to them about my life um, as a HR manager for Shell in London, look at me and their, you know, their mouth falls open and their eyes become, you know, as big as plates. And they go like, what, you? <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's, it's life will take you. Pay attention. That's good. Thank you, Annette. You mentioned earlier your uh, Instagram live silent session. How can listeners find more details of that? I have the camera out on the field. Sometimes people think that nothing's happening and you just need to listen because there's always birds or geese or cockerels or something (laughs) making noise. It's always a brief breathing practice or a grounding practice or a body scan or something to start off with. Then we're silent for about 20 minutes. Then there is a, either a poem or a piece of prose, another 15 minute silence, and then some journaling questions that are loosely related to the poem, not literally, but loosely. And then people who are on the, on the mailing list will receive the text of the poems as well every morning, Friday morning in their inbox. Wow, thank you. It's a lovely little gathering that keeps on growing by about one person a week. Thank you, Anyet. If there were any questions or anxiety remaining as to whether or not you were the right person to be on this <laughs> podcast, that they now can be officially released. It's been an absolute 
wonderful conversation really enjoyable very evocative but also i think some practical elements in there as well for people to really take home Mm. and, and have a try out with so thank you ever so much um for joining us thank you thanks again for joining us in our search for the soulful leader we've been phil king and cass ricks you can find all the links relating to the topics discussed in this podcast in the show notes We'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast and any ideas you might have for guests or topics that might enrich this conversation. If you want to make contact with us, email podcast at soulfulleadership.uk or you can visit our website at www.soulfulleadership.uk.